In my hand is a book that I first narrated in the year 1986 that I've looked to be scanned, the 1845 version with an introduction by Horatius Bonar and put in PDF format online for some time, and they have finally done it. So it is very much worthwhile as the old recordings are not very good to narrate some of this. And today I just want to focus on Bonar's introduction because I think some of the things he says is very edifying. It is called Historical Collections Relating to Remarkable Periods of the Success of the Gospel, compiled by the Reverend John Gillies, published originally in 1754 and now reprinted with a preface and continuation to the present time by Horatius Bonar. Bonar's preface begins, The world is still sleeping its sleep of death. It has been a slumber of many generations, sometimes deeper, sometimes lighter, yet still a slumber like that of the tomb, as if destined to continue till the last trumpet sound, and then there shall be no more sleep. Yet God has not left it to sleep on, unwarned. He has spoken in a voice that might reach the dullest ears and quicken the coldest heart. Ten thousand times has he thus spoken, and still he speaks. But the world refuses to hear. Its myriads slumber on as if this sleep of death were the very blessedness of its being. Yet in one sense the world's sleep has never been universal. Never has there been an age when it could be said there was not one awake. The multitude has always slept, but there has always been a little flock awake. Even in the world's deepest midnight, there have been always children of the light and of the day. In the midst of a slumbering world, some have been in every age awake. God's voice had reached them, and his mighty power had raised them, and they walked the earth, awake among sleepers and living among the dead. The volume before us contains not the history of the sleeping, many, but of the waking few. Its object is to trace out their story and record it for a memorial to all generations. The world has written at large a history of its sleeping multitudes. It becomes the Church of Christ to record the simpler, briefer annals of its awakened ones. Doubtless their record is on high, written more imperishably than the world can ever accomplish for its sons. Yet still it is well for her to have a record of those of whom the world was not worthy. Their story is as full of interest as it is of importance. The waking up of each soul would be manner enough for a history. Its various shakings and startings up, or it was fully aroused. The word or the stroke that affected the work. The time the way in which it became awake for eternity and for God, as well as this new course of light after it awoke. All these are fraught with an interest to which nothing of time or earth can ever once be compared. And then, when the voice of God awakes not one but thousands, it may be in a day, when whole villages and districts seems as if arising and putting on new life, how intensely, how unutterably interesting. At such a crisis, it seems as if the world itself were actually beginning to awake, as if the shock that had broken the slumbers of so many were about to shake the whole world together. 
Yet alas, the tokens of life soon vanish. The half-awakened sleepers sink back into deeper slumber, and the startled world lies down in still more sad and desperate security. The history of the church is full of these awakenings, some on a larger and some on a smaller scale. Indeed, such narratives as those with which this work abounds form the true history of the church. If we were to take our ideas of this from the inspired church history given us in the Acts of the Apostles, many a wondrous scene has been witnessed from the day of Pentecost downwards to our own day. And what volume better deserves the attention and study of the believer than that which contains a record of these outpourings of the Spirit? Besides, the interest that cleaves to them, there is much to be learned from them by the church. To see how God has been working, and to mark the means and instruments by which he has carried on his work, cannot fail to be profitable and quickening. It makes us sensible of our own shortcomings, and it points out the way by which the blessings may be secured. Let us look for a little at the instruments and their success as we find them recorded in this volume. Let us mark their character and contemplate their success. They were men of like passions as we are, yet how marvelously blessed in their labors. Whence then comes their vast success? What manner of men were they? What weapons did they employ? First, they were in earnest about the great work of the ministry on which they had entered. They felt their infinite responsibility as stewards of the mysteries of God, and shepherds appointed by the chief shepherd to gather in and watch over souls. They lived and labored and preached like men on whose lips the immortality of thousands hung. Everything they did and spoke bore the stamp of earnestness and proclaimed to all with whom they came into contact that the manners about which they had been sent to treat were of infinite moment, admitting of no indifference, no postponement even for a day. Yet their fervor was not that of excitement. It was the steadfast but tranquil purpose of men who felt the urgency and weight of the cause entrusted to them and who knew that necessity was laid upon them, yea, woe was unto them if they preached not the gospel. They felt that as ministers of the gospel they dare not act otherwise. They dare not throw less than their whole soul into the conflict. They dare not take their case or fold their arms. They dare not be indifferent to the issue when professing to lead on the hosts of the living God against the armies of the prince of darkness. Number two, they were bent upon success. It was with a good hope of success that they first undertook the awful office of the ministry, and to despair of this would have been shameful distrust of him who had sent them forth, while to be indifferent to it would have been to prove themselves nothing short of traitors to him and to his cause. As warriors, they set their hearts on victory and fought with the believing anticipation of triumph under the guidance of such a captain as their head. As shepherds, they could not sit idle on the mountainside in the sunshine or the breeze or the tempest, heedless of their strain, perishing, bleeding flock. They watched, gathered, guarded, fed the sheep committed to their care. Here the testimony of one of them, quote, 
when I came there, which is about seven years after, I had the pleasure of seeing much of the fruits of his ministry. Divers of his hearers with whom I had an opportunity of conversing appear to be converted persons by their soundness in principle, Christian experience, and pious practice. And these persons declared that the administrations of the aforesaid gentlemen were the means of it. This, together with a kind letter which he sent me respecting the necessity of dividing the word aright, and giving to every man his portion in due season, through the divine blessing, excited me to a greater earnestness in ministerial labors. I began to be very much distressed about my want of success. For I knew not for half a year or more after I came to New Brunswick that any one was converted by my labors, although several persons were at times affected transiently. It pleased God to afflict me about its time with sickness by which I had affecting views of eternity. I was then exceedingly grieved that I had done so little for God, and was very desirous to live for one half year more, if it was his will that I might stand upon the stage of the world, as it were, and plead more faithfully for his cause, and take more earnest pains for the conversion of souls. The secure state of the world appeared to me in a very affecting light, and one thing among others pressed me sore, namely, that I had spent much time in conversing about trifles, which might have been spent in examining people's states towards God, and persuading them to turn to Him. I therefore prayed to God that He would be pleased to give me one half year more. I was determined to endeavor to promote His kingdom with all my might at all adventures. The petition God was pleased to grant manifold and to enable me to keep my resolution in some measure. In quote, Gilbert Tennant. This story can be read in Archibald Alexander's work, The Log College. Number three, there were men of faith. They plowed and sowed in hope. They might sometimes go forth weeping, bearing precious seed. Yet these were the tears of sorrow and compassion, not of despair. They knew that in due season they should reap if they did not faint, that their labor in the Lord would not be in vain, and that ere long they would return bringing their sheaves with them. They had confidence in the God whose they were and whom they served, knowing that he would not send them on this warfare on their own charges. They had confidence in the Savior whose commission they bore and on whose errands they were gone forth. They had confidence in the promises of glorious success with which he had armed and comforted them. Confidence in the Holy Spirit's almighty power and grace as a glorifier of Christ, the testifier of his work, and the quickener of dead souls. They had confidence in the word, the gospel, the message of reconciliation which they proclaimed, knowing that it could not return void to him who sent it forth. Thus they went forth in faith and confidence, anticipating victory, defying enemies, despising obstacles and counting not their lives dear to them, that they might finish their course with joy in a ministry which they had received of the Lord Jesus. Number four, they were men of labor. They required to bear the burden and heat of the day. It might be truly said of them that they scorned delights and loved laborious days. Their lives are the annals of incessant, unwearied toil of body and soul, time and strength, substance, health, 
all they were and possessed they freely offered to the Lord, keeping back nothing, grudging nothing, joyfully, thankfully, surrendering all to him who loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood, regretting only this, that they had so little, so very little to give up for him who for their sakes had freely given himself. They knew by experience something of what the apostle testifies concerning himself to the Corinthian church. They knew what it was to be in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. They had no time for levity or sloth or pleasure or idle companionship. They prevented the dawning of the morning to commence their labors, and the shades of evening found them, though wearied and fainting, still toiling on, they labored for eternity, and as men who knew that time was short and the day of recompense at hand. Number five, they were men of patience. They were not discouraged, though they had to labor long without seeing all the fruit they desired. They continued still to sow. Day after day they pursued what to the eye of the world appeared a thankless and fruitless round of toil. They were not soon weary in well-doing, remembering the example of the husbandman in regard to his perishable harvest. Behold, the husbandman waits for the precious fruit of the earth, and has long patience for it until he received the early and latter rain. Many a goodly plan has been rendered abortive by impatience. Many a day of toil has been thrown away by impatience. Many a rash step has been taken and hasty changes adopted in consequence of impatience. Attempts have been made to force on a revival by men who were impatient at the slow progress of the work in their hand, and seldom have these ended in anything but calamitous failure, or at best a momentary excitement which scorched and sterilizes soil from which a little more patient toil would have reaped an abundant harvest. There may be, and there always ought to be, the calmest patience in conjunction with a most intense longing for success. He that believes does not make haste. A friend and brother in the Lord some years ago was called to a, till a portion of the master's vineyard in our own land. He labored and prayed and sought fruit with all his soul, yet at that time he saw but little. He was called away to another circle of labor. After some years he heard that a work of God had taken place in his former field under another faithful brother and fellow worker of Christ. On visiting the spot, he was amazed and delighted to find that many of those who had been converted were the very individuals whom he had several years before visited and warned and prayed for. One man sows, another reaps. Historical note. The person who went away was Robert Murray McChain. The person who came into his pulpit was William Chalmers Burns. Number six. They were men of boldness and determination. Adversaries might contend and oppose. Timid friends might hesitate. But they pressed forward and nothing terrified by difficulty or opposition. Timidity shuts many a door of usefulness and loses many a precious opportunity. It wins no friends while it strengthens every enemy. Nothing is lost by boldness nor gained by fear. It seems often as if there were a premium and upon mere boldness and vigor apart from other things. Even natural courage and resolution will accomplish much. How much more courage created and upheld by faith and prayer. 
In regard, for example, to the dense masses of ungodliness and profligacy in our large towns, what will ever be affected if we timidly shrink back or slothfully fold our hands because the array is so terrific and the apparent probabilities of success so slender? Let us but be prepared to give battle, though it should be one against ten thousand, and who shall calculate the issues? But there is needed not merely natural courage in order to face natural danger or difficulty. There is in our own day a still greater need of moral boldness in order to neutralize the fear of man, the dread of public opinion, the god of our idolatry in this last age, which boasts of superior enlightenment and which would bring everything to the test of reason, or decided by the votes of the majority. We need strength from above to be faithful in these days of trouble, and rebuke, and blasphemy, to set our faces like flint alike against the censor and applause of the multitude, and to dare to be singular for righteousness' sake, and to fight single-handed the battles of the faith, to sneer, to scoff, the contemptuous smile of superiority, the cold support, the cordial opposition, the timid friendship, the bold hostility in private and public, from lips of companions or neighbors or fellow citizens, often under pretext of reverence for religion, these are fitted to daunt the mind of common nerve, and to meet these nothing less than divine grace is needed. Never perhaps in any age has wickedness assumed a bolder front and attitude, and never therefore was Christian courage more required than now. It needs little indeed of this to traverse a customary routine of parish duty. Men of the world and mere professors can tolerate or perhaps commend such diligence. But to step beyond that, to break the regularity of well-beaten forms, to preach and labor in season and out of season in churches or barns or schoolhouses or fields or streets or highways. To deal faithfully and closely with men's consciences whenever you may happen to be brought into contact with them. To be always a minister, always a watchman, always a Christian, always a lover of souls. This is to turn the world upside down. To offend against every rule of good breeding and to tear up the landmarks of civilized society. Ministers and private Christians require more than ever to be strong and of good courage, to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. This has ever been one of the great secrets of ministerial success. Them that honor God, God has never filled, to honor and to bless. Number seven, they were men of prayer. It is true that they labored much, visited much, studied much, but they also prayed much. In this they abounded. They were much alone with God, replenishing their own souls out of the living fountain, that out of them might flow to their people rivers of living water. In our day there is doubtless among many a grievous mistake upon this point. Some who are really seeking to feed the flock and to save souls, are led to exhaust their energies upon external duties and labors, overlooking the absolute necessity of enriching, ripening, filling, elevating their own souls by prayer and fasting. On this account there is much time wasted and labor thrown away, a single word coming fresh from lips that have been kindled 
into heavenly warmth by near fellowship with God will avail more than a thousand others. Did Christ's faithful ministers act more on this principle, they would soon learn what an increased fruitfulness and power are by this imparted to all their labors. Were more of each returning Saturday spent in fellowship with God, in solemn intercession for the people, in humiliation for sin, and application for the outpouring of the Spirit, our Sabbath would be far more blessed. Our sermons would be far more successful. Our faces would shine as did the face of Moses. A more solemn awe and reverence would be all over our assemblies, and there would be fewer complaints of laboring in vain or spending our strength for naught. What might be lost in elaborate composition or critical exactness of style or argument would be far more than compensated for by the double portion of the Spirit we might then expect to receive. Number eight, they were men whose doctrines were of the most decided kind, both as respects law and gospel. There's a breadth and power about their preaching, a glow and energy about their words and thoughts that make us feel that they were men of might. Their trumpet gave no feeble nor uncertain sound, either to saint or sinner, either to the church or the world. They lifted up their voices and did not spare. There was no flinching, no flattering, or prophesying of smooth things. Perhaps they excelled more in the proclamation of the law and its eternal penalties than in the declaration of the glad tidings of great joy through him who had finished transgression and made an end of sin upon the cross. There is sometimes a lack of fullness and liberty in their statements of the gospel. There is a constraint about some of their sermons as if they feared making the glad tidings too free. There is in their dealings with inquirers a tendency to throw them in upon their own acts or feelings or convictions instead of drawing them out at once to what has been finished on the cross, leading them to look for some preparatory work in themselves before rejoicing in the gospel. But still there are at other times full exhibitions of the Savior and free proclamations of his glorious gospel. Their preaching seems to have been of the most masculine and fearless kind, falling on the audience with tremendous power. It was not vehement. It was not fierce. It was not noisy. It was far too solemn to be such. It was massive, weighty, cutting, piercing, sharper than any two-edged sword. The weapons wielded by them were well-tempered and well-furbished, sharp and keen. Nor were they wielded by a feeble or unpracticed arm. These warriors did not fight with the scabbard instead of the blade, nor did they smite with the flat instead of the edge of the sword, nor did they spare any effort either of strength or skill which might carry home the thrust of the stroke to the very vitals. Hence so many fell wounded under them, such is the case of the celebrated Thomas Shepherd of Cambridge, regarding whom it was said that he scarce ever preached a sermon, but some or other of his congregation were struck with great distress and cried out in agony, What shall I do to be saved? Or take the following account of the effects produced by a sermon of Jonathan Edwards at Enfield in July 1741, which is being new we lay before our readers, quote, from Benjamin Trumbull's History of Connecticut, quote, While the people in the neighboring towns were in great distress for their souls, says a historian, 
the inhabitants of that town were very secure, loose, and vain. A lecture had been appointed in Enfield, and the neighboring people the night before were so affected at the thoughtlessness of the inhabitants, and in such fears that God would in his righteous judgment pass them by, while the divine showers were falling all around them, as to be prostrate before him a considerable part of the night, supplicating mercy for their souls. When the appointed time for the lecture came, a number of the neighboring ministers attended, and some from a distance. When they went into the meeting house, the appearance of the assembly was thoughtless and vain. The people hardly conducted themselves with common decency. Jonathan Edwards preached, his plain, unpretending manner, both in language and delivery, and his established reputation for holiness and knowledge of the truth forbade the suspicion that any trick of oratory would be used to mislead his hearers. He began in a clear, careful, demonstrative style of a teacher, solicitous for the result of his effort, and anxious that every step of his argument should be early and fully understood. His text was Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, Their foot shall slide in due time. As he advanced in unfolding the meaning of the text, the most careful logic brought him and his hearers to conclusions, which the most tremendous imagery could but inadequately express. His most terrific descriptions of the doom and danger of the impenitent only enabled him to apprehend more clearly the truths which he had compelled him to believe. They seemed to be not the product of the imagination, but what they really were, a part of the argument. The effect was as might have been expected. Trumbull informs us that before the assembly was ended, the assembly appeared deeply impressed and bowed with an awful conviction of their sin and danger. There was such a breathing of distress and weeping that the preacher was obliged to speak to the people and desire silence that he might be heard. This is the beginning of the same great and prevailing concern in that place with which the colony in general was visited." End quote. Number nine, they were men of solemn deportment and deep spirituality of soul. Their lives and their lips accorded with each other. Their daily walk furnished the best attestation and illustration of the truth they preached. They were always ministers of Christ wherever they were to be found or seen. No frivolity, no flippancy, no gaiety, no worldly conviviality or companionships neutralized their public preaching or marred a work they were seeking to accomplish. The world cannot point to them as being but slightly dissimilar from itself, or as men who, though faithful in the pulpit, forgot throughout the week their character, their office, their errand. Martin Luther once remarked, regarding a beloved and much admired friend, he lives what we preach. So it was with those much honored men, Solomon Stoddard, Thomas Shepard, Cotton Mather, Jonathan Edwards, Gilbert Tennant, and their noble fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. We extract the following account of Gilbert Tennant's life and doctrine from the pen of Thomas Prince, another of the glorious band. It will illustrate some remarks under the former head as well as this, quote, He did not indeed at first come up to my expectation, but afterwards exceeded it. In private converse with him, I found him to be a man of considerable parts and learning, free, gentle, condescending, and from his own various experience reading the most noted writers on experimental divinity as well as of the scriptures, 
and conversing with many who had been awakened by his ministry in New Jersey, where he then lived. He seemed to have had as deep an acquaintance with the experimental part of religion as any I have conversed with, and his preaching was as searching and rousing as ever I had heard. He seemed to have no regard to please the eyes of his hearers with agreeable gesture, nor their ears with delivery, nor their fancy with language, but to aim directly at their hearts and consciences, to lay open the ruinous delusions, show them their numerous secret hypocritical shifts in religion, and drive them out of every deceitful refuge in which they made themselves easy with the form of godliness without the power." And many who were pleased in a good conceit of themselves before now found to their great distress they were only self-deceived hypocrites. And though, while the discovery was a-making, some at first raged, as they have admitted to me and others, yet in the progress of the discovery many were forced to submit, and then the power of God so broke and humbled them that they wanted a further and even a more thorough discovery. They went to hear him that the secret corruptions and delusions of their hearts might be more discovered, and the more searching the sermon, the more acceptable it was to their anxious minds." From the terrible and deep convictions he had passed through in his own soul, he seemed to have had such a lively view of the divine majesty, the spirituality, purity, extensiveness, and strictness of his law, with his glorious holiness and displeasure as sin, his justice, truth, and power in punishing the damned, that the very terrors of God seemed to arise in his mind afresh when he displayed and brandished him in the eyes of unreconciled sinners." And though some could not bear the representation and avoided his preaching, yet the arrows of conviction by his ministry seemed so deeply to pierce the hearts of others, and even some of the most stubborn sinners, as to make them fall down at the feet of Christ and yield a lowly submission to him. As to Gilbert Tennant's preaching, it was frequently both terrible and searching. It was often for manner justly terrible as he, according to the inspired oracles, exhibited the dreadful holiness justice, law, threatenings, truth, power, majesty of God, and his anger with rebellious, impenitent, unbelieving, and Christless sinners, the awful danger that they were in every moment of being struck down to hell and being damned forever, with the amazing miseries of that place of torment. But his exhibitions, both for matter and manner, fell inconceivably below the reality Though this terrible preaching may strongly work on the animal passions and frighten the hearers, rouse a soul, prepare the way for terrible convictions, yet these mere animal terrors in these convictions are quite different things. Such were the convictions wrought in many hundreds in this town by Mr. Tennant's searching ministry, and such was the case of those many scores of several other congregations as well as mine, who came to me and others for direction under them. And indeed, by all their converse I found, it was not so much the terror as the searching nature of his ministry that was the principal means of their conviction. It was not merely so much his laying open the terrors of the law and wrath of God or damnation of hell, for this they could pretty well bear as long as they hoped these belonged not to them, or they could easily avoid them as his being able to lay open their many vain and secret shifts and refuges, counterfeit resemblances of grace, delusive and damning hopes, their utter impotence and impending danger of destruction, 
in which they found all their hopes and refuges of lies to fail them, and themselves exposed to eternal ruin, unable to help themselves, and in a lost condition. This searching preaching was both a suitable and principal means of their conviction. And now was such a time as we never knew. The Reverend Mr. Cooper once said that more came to him in one week in deep concern about their souls than in the whole 24 years of his preceding ministry. I can also say the same as to the numbers who came to me. By Mr. Cooper's letter to his friend in Scotland, it appears he had had about 600 different persons in three months' time. And Mr. Webb informed me that he had in the same amount of time about a thousand that came to him, end quote. We might swell out these remarks upon the characteristics of the ministry of that day as illustrative of what a Christian ministry ought ever to be, and as in many respects exposing and rebuking its defects in our day, but we must not unduly protract our preface. Such were the instruments. Such were the mighty things accomplished by them in the strength of the Spirit of the Lord. In the different awakenings there were doubtless many things which proclaimed the frailty and imperfection of the agency through which the Holy Spirit wrought his mighty signs and wonders. There were things to remind man that the treasure was in earthen vessels. These revivals were not without their blemishes. There might be errors, there might be imprudencies, there might be excitement, there might be physical emotion, but still, Notwithstanding all that may be spoken against him, the hand of God was manifestly there, awakening, deepening, extending, carrying forward a mighty movement by which the walls and bulwarks of the Prince of Darkness were shaken to their deepest base. The Lord gave the word, and great was the company of those who published it as well as those who received it and obeyed it. Nothing was to be seen but a faithful minister of Christ, surrounded by a small band of praying ones, leading on the array against the prince of darkness. There was no pomp, no display, no artifice, no carnal attraction. Yet the ranks of darkness gave way before them, and multitudes owned the power of the simple, yet resistless words that fell from their earnest lips. How could the world but wonder at such vast results, so disproportioned to the apparent cause? How could they but feel if they did not confess that all this was the doing of the Lord? As an illustration of how remarkably the work was of God and not of man, we quote without comment the following passages. It is observable how, at this remarkable day, a spirit of deep concern would seize upon persons. Some were in the house, and some walking in the highway, some in the woods, and some in the field some in conversation and some in retirement. Some children and some adults and some ancient persons would sometimes on a sudden be brought under the strongest impressions from a sense of the great realities of the other world and eternal things. But such things, as far as I can learn, were usually, if not ever, impressed upon men while they were in some sort exercising their minds upon the word of God or spiritual objects. And for the most part, it has been under the public preaching of the word that these lasting impressions have been fastened upon them in Quote, when man proceeds to the accomplishment of some mighty enterprise, he puts forth prodigious efforts, as if by the sound of his axes and hammers he would proclaim his own fancied might and bear down opposing obstacles. He cannot work without sweat and dust and noise. When God would do a marvelous work such as may amaze all heaven and earth, he commands silence all around. 
sends forth a still small voice and then sets some feeble instrument to work and straightway it is done. Man toils and pants and after all effects but little. The creator in the silent majesty of power, noiseless yet resistless, achieves by a word the infinite wonders of omnipotence. In order to loose the bands of winter and bring in the verdure of the pleasant spring, he does not send forth his angels to hew in pieces the thickened ice, or to strip off from the mountainside the gathered snows, or to plant anew over the face of the bleak earth flowers fresh from his creating hand. No, he breathes from his lips a mild warmth into the frozen air, and with this in stillness but an irresistible power the work proceeds, the ice is shivered, the snows dissolve, the rivers resume their flow, the earth awakes us out of sleep, the hills and the valleys put on their freshening verdure, the fragrance of earth takes wings and fills the air, till a new world of beauty rises in silence amid the dissolution of the old. Such is God's method of working both in the natural and in the spiritual world, silent, simple, majestic, and resistless. Such was the Reformation. Such were the revivals in Scotland under our fathers of the covenant. Such was the church of shots on that memorable Pentecost when the unstudied words of a timid, trembling youth carried salvation to five hundred souls. Such was ire in its Pentecostal days when from the lonely church at midnight there went up to heaven the broken sighs of that man of prayer, John Welsh. And such was Northampton in later times when Jonathan Edwards watched and prayed for its citizens and when from the closet of that holy man there went forth a living power that wrought such wonders there. And is the Lord's hand shortened that it cannot save, or his ear heavy that it cannot hear? John Gillies, the author of the historical collections, was one whose ministry God seems to have extensively blessed, and whose zeal for the reviving of God's work led him not only to search out the times of refreshing enjoyed by the churches in other days, but to use every effort to bring the records of these days both before his own people and before his brethren in the ministry. Besides the two volumes of historical collections, he published an appendix in 1761 and had prepared some materials for a supplement, which was published by Erskine of Edinburgh after his death. During 1750 and 1751, he published a weekly address to his people, which contains much valuable matter upon the same subject. He was born in 1712 and was the son of the Reverend John Gillies, minister of Carriston near Brecon. In 1742, he was ordained minister of the College Church, Glasgow, where he remained till his death in 1796. The records of his life and ministry are very scanty indeed, and by this we doubt not the Church of Christ has suffered loss. We don't know how far private documents might yet supply the loss. If such exists, why should they be kept from the Church? We have little more to say of his character than what is contained in the following extract from Dr. Erskine's biography of him in the supplement to his historical collections, quote, To grow in the experimental knowledge of Christ and to conduct others to that knowledge was the business of his life and the chiefest joy of his heart. Love to God, to the Redeemer, to all men though especially to the household of faith, animated him to unwearied efforts in promoting the cause of truth and holiness. His pulpit services were conducted in a style plain, simple, and unadorned, yet with force and energy. 
besides generally delivering three discourses every Sabbath. Several years of his life were distinguished by his instituting public lectures and serious exhortations twice and often three times every week. While health and strength permitted him, he was equally faithful in visiting and examining the people of his charge, in visiting the sick and afflicted, and in every other private parochial duty. For some time he published a weekly paper, addressed to the consciences and hearts of his people. His warm, affectionate expostulations from the pulpit and from the press drew the attention and awakened the religious concerns of many. A pious student of divinity informed me a few days ago that his first serious thoughts arose from one of the doctor's weekly papers that happened on occasion to fall in his way. Thus was the doctor instant in season and out of season, and studied to keep back from his people nothing profitable but to declare to them the whole counsel of God. Indeed, he had daily lessons in the consistency and uniformity of his conduct and his upright, circumspect, and exemplary walk. He approved himself a minister of God in tumults and labors and watchings and fastings by pureness, by kindness, by love unfeigned. And to his dear hearers, his mouth was open and his heart enlarged. He was gentle among them, even as a nurse cherishes her children, and being effectually desirous of them, he was willing to have imparted to them not the gospel of God only, but his own soul also, because they were dear to him. Having been fifty-four years their pastor, he had baptized and married the larger part of his congregation. To him they looked up as a father and a friend, and many tender tokens of his affection will long live in their grateful remembrance." When in the last years of his life he was only able to appear in church at sacramental occasions and to exhort one table, the most indifferent spectator could not but observe the sympathy and love which shone in the faces of his hearers and the tears which they could not restrain when he solemnly blessed them in the name of the Lord and spoke of his dissolution as being at hand with looks of humility, serenity, and joy. In quote, Horatius Bonar, Kelso, England, March 1st, 1845.